Welcome to American Midterms. Before we get to the interview, let's talk about some current news. So let's start with Arizona. 538 lists this as likely Democratic. Democratic astronaut Mark Kelly is facing venture capitalist and leading election denier Blake Masters. Blake Masters is being boosted with millions of campaign dollars by his former employer Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal. Democrats in the state had to sit through nearly a year of election investigation that gave Joe Biden more votes after their investigation, not less. Let's talk about North Carolina. Let's see who's going to represent John B. and Sarah Cameron. I'm sorry, that is probably a really dated reference. I got friends who love the show Outer Banks. Outer Banks, if you didn't know, is in North Carolina. 538 places this rating as lean Republican. Uh, Congressman Ted Budd and Sherry Beasley are squaring off. Ted Budd is actually a really good Republican candidate. But Sherry Beasley, who is the Democrat there, she's won statewide twice. She won once to become a justice on the state court of appeals, and she won to become the chief justice on the state Supreme Court. So she's a strong candidate and very strong Democrat in North Carolina. There's probably nobody better um, in terms of Democrats who would be able to beat Ted Budd and become a senator to represent that state. Next, let's talk about Pennsylvania. 538 places Pennsylvania as likely Democrat. We have Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman and Dr. Oz. So it was lean Republican before Dr. Oz became the Republican nominee. Um, Now it is likely Democratic, and that is because Dr. Oz is the candidate, and it goes to show that he is not a great candidate in the eyes of Pennsylvanian voters. Fetterman has attacked Dr. Oz in some hard-hitting ads about employing undocumented workers, being from New Jersey, and peddling miracle pills or supplements, which he later had to speak about in front of a congressional committee. It's not a good look. He's out of touch with Pennsylvania voters. John Fetterman, he actually had a stroke. Um, He had a stroke in June, and Dr. Oz had the campaign trail to himself for a month or a month and a half or something like that, and he hasn't been able to make up much ground in terms of polling, and clearly 538 still does not give him, um, gives him a fighting chance, but does not think he is in the best position to win. If you ever hear someone talk about how bad um, a Republican candidate is, They're probably talking about Dr. Oz. The only reason he won the primary was because of his endorsement from Donald Trump. These endorsements across the country were very successful this primary season. He won that endorsement, and now he is single-handedly risking the GOP's chance for the Senate this November. Because Pennsylvania, as some of you may or may not know, currently has a Republican representing them in the Senate. If the Democrats were to flip Pennsylvania, a very important state, a very important swing state, it would definitely hurt their chances of maintaining control of the chamber. Next up, Nevada, toss up. Um, I do not think of Nevada a lot. I'm sorry if anybody here is from Nevada, but maybe I should be because this is a very close race between incumbent Democratic Senator Cortez Masto and former Attorney General Adam Laxalt. A pro-choice state that went for Biden by three points and Hillary for two points, it is possibly the best example to observe when it comes to how midterms will usually go. While 538 ranks this as a toss-up, Laxalt has seen some favorable polls coming out lately. Um, Lately, there's been polls that show him up by four points, three points. Um, There was one that showed him up one point, two points, whatever. 
Despite Biden being in a better position than he was in July, he's still not a wildly popular president. And voters, especially independents, are doing what they have always done in the midterms. Despite voting for Joe Biden, it looks like it's a little bit closer now. It looks like it's going to be a toss-up. It might go to a Republican. That shouldn't shock anybody. This should be a good year for Republican candidates. Adam Laxalt is an okay candidate. I wouldn't call him a Ted Budd. I certainly wouldn't call him a Dr. Oz. Um, But I could see Nevada independents looking towards Adam Laxalt to be a candidate to balance out Joe Biden and all the policies he wants to put in place. Today, we have the Democratic nominee for state comptroller, Sean Scanlon. He has been in the General Assembly since 2015 and is the executive director of New Haven's Tweed Airport. Um, Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about why you're running? Well, first of all, good to be on the show. Thank you for doing this. Obviously, really important that we pay attention to all elections, but sometimes the midterms don't get as much love as other elections do. And so appreciate what you're doing. Um, So uh, I grew up in Guilford. Uh, My dad was a cop. My mom was a stay-at-home parent. And when I was six, my folks split up and my dad moved back to New York where he was from. And I was then raised in Guilford by a single mom who went out and had to get a career and she started a small business. And so when I was growing up, I saw her struggling a lot with her small business and just in general as as a single parent and it made me want to go into politics uh, much later in my life and now that i'm in politics i'm doing whatever i can to try to help people like her which at the time i thought was just her but the older i got the more i realized there's a lot of people out there that are struggling like she did and that's why i wanted to get involved in politics sean it sounds like it's personal for you um if i made my information correct you just became a father this past summer congratulations has that changed how you're looking at this race well yeah thank you um i became a a double dad so i have a three-year-old there we go uh, and then my wife and i had a new uh baby about seven weeks ago so i now have two boys in my house and um yeah politics is personal for me i think whether it's with my mom or now with my boys um i I think it's changed the way that i look at things it's changed the way i do the job that i currently have in the last eight years right having kids uh you know definitely changes you but either way um i i come from very humble roots and uh, i'm also very young and those two things are not always the case for a lot of politicians and i think i've been able to bring a unique perspective to the job that I have now as a state rep, and I believe that I'll be able to bring uh, a different perspective uh, as the youngest person ever elected to the job uh, as our next state controller. Yeah, I think that's an attractive combination for a lot of people, um, having a young politician who comes from humble roots. You spoke about the last eight years of your life um, in the Connecticut General Assembly. I want to know, what are you the most proud of in your time there? Oh, man, that's a good question. Uh, at the risk of being a total politician and giving you a couple answers, <laughs> I guess I would sort of narrow it down to two things. Um, really proud of passing a lot of bills, but the two that meant the most to me, number one was a bill that happened after a really bad incident in my district. A young man by the name of Ethan Song, uh, who was 15, was killed in a really tragic accident mm. in January of 2018 with a gun uh, that he had found uh, with a friend at his friend's house. Uh. And he lost his life. And I knew his parents. And right after the 
incident, I said to them, hey, look, you know, if you guys ever want to do anything uh, about this, you know, uh, my door is always open. And uh, six months later, they, they called me and said, All right, we're ready to do something. And I worked with a Republican named Vinnie Candelora, who I have a great relationship with, but we don't agree on too much, to pass, you know, the first overwhelmingly bipartisan gun safety bill. It's called Ethan's Law back in 2019 and that bill is now being used as a model to pass across the whole country in congress right now which is really really cool but the, the other one i'll just give you real quick is um passed a lot of bills about healthcare because healthcare is the reason i ran for office really in the first place like i said my mom was a small business owner she almost never had in health insurance and uh, i became chair of the insurance committee we passed a number of laws that are really good but one that really mattered to me was uh, called mental health parity. Basically this idea that people were being discriminated against and their insurance company was compensating them less for in mental health care than it was for physical health care. And I think that that's super messed up. So I worked with Matt Lesser, who at the time was my co-chair in the insurance committee when we passed uh, you know, Connecticut's Mental Health Parity Act, which means that from now on, insurance companies have to cover behavioral health and physical health equally so that nobody can ever be discriminated against because they're just trying to use mental health care. Sean, those are some tremendous accomplishments. Speaking on the mental health side, I know a lot of people who have struggled with that. So I thank you for, um, you know, getting that, getting that passed and, and working with, with your colleague in the General Assembly. So I want to talk a little bit about Bob Stefanowski's new tax plan, which is intended to ease tax burdens on residents by utilizing funds from our so-called rainy day fund. What do you think of this $2 billion plan? Well, you know, Bob's running for office, right? So when people run for office, they put out a lot of plans and sometimes they think, you know, what's the best political you know, outcome of this, which is people will think it's a good plan, right? And they don't always think about whether things are possible. Um, and this is something that politicians on both sides of the aisle do, so I'm not just picking on Bob, but, you know, politicians are not that popular for this exact reason, which is that they make a lot of big promises in the election time, and then they get into office, and either they realize that what they said was not possible, or they knew the whole time, and that they just kind of admitted there. And that's why I think people in my business get a bad rap. And so, you know, the thing about Bob's plan is, it sounds nice to cut taxes by $2 billion. I would argue that a billion dollars of that tax cut is aimed at cutting the gas tax, something that the Democrats already did since last April, and something that I would argue we don't really necessarily need to do anymore because the price of gas today is way lower than it was during this first part of this crisis, you know, seven or eight months ago when gas was insane. Um, so first thing I'd say is I just don't know that we need to do that. But the second is, um, I think it's really irresponsible to kind of drain the rainy day fund. And I know it sounds crazy that Democrat would be arguing for more fiscal conservatism, but that's really where I think we've become as parties now. Yeah. The Democrats under the governor and myself at the finance chair have been arguing that we should save more money and we should pay down our debt and, and be cautious with this. And the Republicans are the ones that are saying, like Democrats usually do, that we should go out and spend this money uh, and we should do things with it now. I think we're on the right path where we are paying down our debt, we are balancing our budget, we've had big surpluses, and this year we did pass the largest tax cut in the history of Connecticut, $660 million of relief 
uh, across the board to a lot of different people. I think Bob's plan is a little bit too false promisey uh, and not possible for him to do. And even if he found the way to do it and could get that plan passed by the legislature, which I don't think he could, I think it'd be putting us in a difficult position if we are, in fact, going into a recession, which I probably think we are. You think we are, yeah? Looks like it, right? I mean, I yeah. think, again, signs are pointing to that. We've had some weird stuff happening with our stock market and economy lately where we're still growing jobs, which usually does not happen going into recession, but yet we have this persistent inflation that we can't really dip in the butt. So um, I, I think uh, at some point when we cool off the economy, um, which is what you know the Fed is trying to do right now, basically, you know, Econ 101 on this podcast is... Uh, when, when goods are, are really expensive, which is what's happening right now with inflation, um, the Fed, which is the sort of governor of, of our fiscal policies in the United States, right. um, they, they have one tool at their disposal to try to calm that down, and that's raising interest rates, which nobody likes to do, including the Fed, but it's really the best way to do it. And what they're trying to do now is to, is to sort of what they call a soft landing, which is kind of like ease us into these really high rates and hope that that slows these price increases down. But it's really not working right now, which is kind of weird on top of the fact that we are seeing some job growth. So um, I hope we don't go into a recession, but I think we need to plan for one. And uh, what we have done in Connecticut under the governor is we have planned for one. And with a $3.3 billion rainy day fund, which I think has never been done in the history of Connecticut before, We've got a little bit of a cushion if this recession does come. Do I think it's going to come? Probably. Uh, if it doesn't, that's awesome. If it does, we're ready for it. Yeah, we can We can only hope and, and plan for the worst. I have a professor in my class the other night. He said he was planning on retiring next year, and, and things have changed because of how his um, portfolio has been going, which is which is very unfortunate. But since we since we brought up Bob Stefanowski, I was at an event with him and Governor Lamont the other day. They actually both mentioned Tweed Airport as an yeah. example to generate some income for the state of Connecticut, generate some business. What has that experience being executive director taught you? Well, look, when I started there, first of all, every single person I know told me not to take the job there because at that time it was very controversial. It's still obviously controversial, yeah. but it was controversial for years. Nothing was happening. Uh, when I started there in November of 2019, we had one flight every couple of days to Philadelphia on a 76-passenger plane that was almost never full. We had a, you know, 15, 20 employees, really no promising future. And today, uh, as I do this interview with you to break some news on your podcast, um, we're going to cross the 500,000-person passenger mark just since November of last year wow. at Tweed Airport. Wow. So in the span of less than one year, we've gone from having about 40,000 people fly out of the airport a year to 500,000. Um, and that obviously has been possible through a lot of uh, relationships and deals that we put together over the course of the last 18 or so months. And now, um, unlike when I started, we have an air carrier in Avello that offers service to 14 destinations from New Haven nonstop. Like I just said, we've had 500,000 people come in and out of our doors, which is a historic record at the airport. We've hired over 200 people just in the last few months in terms of new jobs in the community. And uh, by and large, I think it's been a really big deal and, and a good thing for not just 
you know, the, the part of the state that I live in, which is Greater New Haven, but also the whole state. Um, and I just think the sky is the limit for what that airport can mean for both passengers and experience, but also for our state and our economy. And I'm just, I won't be there, but I'm excited to see what the future holds for the airport. Yeah, for sure. The sky is the limit. Is that a uh, is that an airport joke? Is you didn't mean to do that? <laughs> yeah, man. If I if I didn't do airport puns, I think I would get fired as the executive director of the of the airport. So oh my I try gosh, to get as many in there as possible. Who who else is gonna do it, right? <laughs> exactly. I got one more question for you. It's a two parter. Sure. What challenges come with running for a state comptroller as opposed to running for the governorship or a better known statewide position? And if you could rename the name Comptroller, would you rename it or keep it as it is or name it something where people might understand the job a little more? Well, as you kind of alluded to, most people have zero idea what the Comptroller exactly. does. But what the Comptroller does is actually pretty important. You're basically the chief financial officer for the state. Uh, and so to answer your second question, uh, Florida, for example, they call this job the CFO. Most people know what that means when yeah. I explain that to them. So thinking about how to rebrand the office maybe that would work uh, you know calling it the state cfo because that's really what it is um but the the challenge for me and and why i'm attracted to this and why i took the tweed job and why i ran for a state rep was i i really believe that i and all of us have the ability to do stuff and make uh, offices matter more to people than they had before and i tried to do that as a state rep i certainly did that as the executive director of Tweed, and, and I want to do that as comptroller because while most people have no freaking clue what that job is about, uh, the job does do a lot of things that directly impact their lives. Um, just this year, um, the state comptroller office now runs the uh, single largest non-employer-sponsored retirement plan. So if you have a job in Connecticut and your job doesn't offer you a pension or a 401k, you can actually buy into a plan through the state that will follow you for the rest of your career if you don't have these things to actually start saving for your retirement, which is something that most people don't do very well. And, and the generation before us and my generation really aren't great at thinking about that long-term fiscal health. Now they can do that with this program. I'm the largest, uh, or I would be the largest uh, you know, person running a employer-sponsored health plan in the state with 250,000 people who get their insurance through the state comptroller. By doing that well, you can obviously help a ton of people, but you can also show what works and expand that to help other people. Like my mom, for example, who never had health insurance, but if I could do what I've proposed the last couple of years of creating a public option for health insurance that she could buy into, um, I would have the ability to get her a better deal on her insurance because I have the leverage of 250,000 people than she can get as a sole proprietor of small business calling one of our big health insurance companies trying to negotiate with them for a plan for one person. So in any number of ways, uh, you know, I think you can make a big difference on people uh, just by making the office a little bit more well-known and then using the office to try to help people out. And uh, I don't know that I have the power to change the name of it, uh, <laughs> but I'm gonna try to change people's perception of it. That may be good enough. Thank you for listening to this episode, a production of QU Podcasts. I'm Matt Harluck, and our producer is Grace McGuire. Our videographer is Tyler Salter, and our social media coordinator is Olivia Geckler. Music from Free Music Archive. Be sure to follow us, American Midterms, on Instagram. See you next week.